0: we're in John chapter 6. Now, in the book of John, you know, we're we're learning and gathering this information that John is giving as John wants us to see Christ. He wants us to see Jesus and who he is. You know, uh, um, um, John was written considerably after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at least least a good bit after, and so he builds on some of the things they say, and we're going to see that today. We're going to see the story of Jesus walking on the water, but but Matthew goes into way more detail. John is kind of assuming that you, you kind of know the background of it, and he, but he wants you to focus on something very particular rather than just go into detail on the whole story. In fact, at the end of his book, he says, I can't tell you everything because if I had, the book would have been gigantic. You know, It would have been thousands of pages long. So I've just told you the most important stuff that I want you to know that God wants us to know. So I'm going to read today's passage. You can just listen. It won't be on the screens. Uh, This is John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake. When they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum, uh, and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. All right? So we've been looking at John. We've been seeing how Jesus is declaring things about himself. He's showing things about himself. He's doing things that point to the fact that he is God, that point to the fact that he is the Messiah, that point to the fact that he is fulfilling qualifications that have been set out already in the Old Testament. And so We're seeing all of this, and this is just one more. Now, last week, what did we see? We saw the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus basically said, I'm the bread of life by doing that. And and next week, we'll start to, or the next, we'll start to look into the sermon that he taught to follow up feeding of the 5,000, where he declares to them, I'm the bread of life. Well, what's the big deal about being the bread of life? And we're going to look into that. But right now, we want to look at fear in the storm. This is what we're talking about here. And uh, I, you know, all of us are different, I guess, but I love storms. I can remember as a little kid sitting on my grandparents' porch. They had a big porch screened in and sitting, and thunderstorms would roll through that part of the country, and just watching the lightning crash and the rain blow, and every once in a while if it was really windy, you know, the rain would hit the screen, and if you see it, the rain hits the screen, and then it just becomes a mist and kind of settles on you. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world, just standing, sitting on that porch getting wet, watching lightning crash, hoping it would hit a tree, you know, that kind of thing. And and I'm still that way. I, I, and I'm, I should ask for a show of hands, but I'm not going to. How many of you, when you, you hear that a hurricane's coming, you're kind of excited, but you're a little bit worried? Because you kind of think, this is cool, big wins, this is awesome, right? You get a little excited, and then you start to think, and if a tree lands on my house, I'm in trouble, right? So I understand this, the, the scariness, but I also, man, I love it. And unfortunately, I had five kids, and they're the, I put that in them. They're the same way. I'm the guy, there's one time a neighbor said this, when, when Isabel hit, and it came in bands, so it would get real windy, And pour like crazy, and then it would slack off. Then it would get real windy, then it would slack off. Well, during one of the, our kids are at the windows, they're watching, and they're going, Look at the street. We have a very crowned street. It looks like a river. And I'm like, Yeah, it does. And the, the band has started to slack off. Let's build a dam. So we got cinder block. I'm carrying out blocks and bricks and pieces of trees that have fallen, and my kids are out in Isabel building a dam and part of the road to watch the water grow so they can play in the, little, the lake they've created. And, and about three years after that, one of my neighbors, he still says it. He says, yeah, you're the idiot that lets his kids play in a hurricane. And I'm like, yes, I am. Yes, I am. And they think it's cool. So, and they thought, yeah. So, I love storms. Now, we're going to face a storm. We're going to see what happens. And this time, you know, we're going to face it also acknowledging the power that's entailed and the possible danger that's involved. Because as Christians, you know, you should think about sometimes how we look at storms. You You see this incredible power on display, and you think, that's nothing compared to God. That's nothing compared to God. And so we're going to look at this, this miracle, the walking on the waters. And so first thing I want you to see is the setting. And John does this a lot. He sets the table for us. He kind of makes us understand what's going on. Jesus just uh, just fed the 5,000. And so he, it says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. So he's showing us that there actually is kind of two. They set out, and then it says by now, like there's been a bit of time, so something has happened, or they've gone a ways or something, and then by now it's getting dark, and so they set off. It was dark, and they had not joined him. So it seems like Jesus was, had planned um, that they were going to go a ways. He was going to join them, and then they were going to go all the way. That seems, there's other clues to that. I'm not 100% positive on that, but it seems like that's what he's trying to say here. And so we have this uh, setting where there's been this huge event, the feeding of 5,000, right? And what happened at the end of the feeding of 5,000? Let me just remind you, this is at the end of the feeding of 5,000. Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So the setting they're in the area of the country that is called the Zealots' stronghold. The Zealots are the revolutionaries who want to take up arms and kick the Romans out by force. They want to kill Romans. I said this last week. Zealots are terrorists or freedom fighters. It depends on which side you're on. But that, the Romans thought of them as terrorists because oftentimes they would attack at night. They would pick off one or two Roman soldiers, uh, um, run up, knock them down, knife them a couple times, and then run into the darkness. So they were known for these hit-and-run tactics. That's the, that's the first-century version of an IED, right? They just, they just happen, swoop, bam, and run. And so this is an area that they are very powerful. This is kind of their stronghold. And they have decided, we figured out who our king is. And we talked about this last week. They know what Jesus has done. If the leader of your army can heal people... That comes in handy. If the leader of your army can raise the dead, that's an obvious. If the leader of your army can feed your army, it's a no-brainer, right? And so it tells us, Jesus, knowing that they intended. Now, that word intended is the word that means something that they've been thinking about, and they believe now it's come to fruition. They've been thinking about this beforehand. There are people in that crowd that have been saying, you guys listen to this guy because he's the guy. He's the one. He's going to be our leader. He's going to pick up the sword. He's going to kill Romans. So Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, the word force, harpazo, is a word that means to ambush somebody, right? It's what they're good at. They said, we're just going to grab him. He's not going to know what happened. We're just going to come up and be talking to him, and all of a sudden, And we're going to make him king, whether he wants to be king or not, because he'll come around. He'll come around. So it's a volatile situation. Jesus knows what's brewing. So he first gets his disciples, and he says, you guys need to leave. And I, 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 I don't know. You know, sometimes I'm just guessing. I wonder if part of it is because Jesus is going, oh, wait, you, you, and you. You'd be for it. I mean, one of his disciples is a zealot. So Jesus knows this is a very vaulted situation. First, get the disciples out of here. And then he withdrew to the mountain by himself. He went up on the mountain out of sight, but where they thought they they could keep tabs on him, I think. And so now it's night, and Jesus hasn't joined them. And so they've gone back out. Uh, Seems to be they maybe were going to meet him at his pot, and then they just said, no, let's just go to Capernaum. We'll, We'll just go there. He told us that's ultimately the goal and we'll trust him on that, all right? So that's the setting. Now, here's the storm. Verse 18, very simple. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that's important for us to understand, and you guys know I love history, I love the background, I love all this stuff, the thing that's good to understand is the Sea of Galilee, or the, you'll see it written as the Sea of Tiberias. Also, the Romans always rename things in their own to take over. So <clears throat> in this sea, in the southeast, there's high mountains and a plateau. Huge, fairly fairly large. So what happens? Very high. So what happens? Cool air pools up there on those high mountains, especially because it's a plateau. So it pools up there and then it leaks slowly down. But every once in a while when the wind is right, the cool air rushes down the mountain. Up on the plateau, it's a a very uh, comfortable climate down at the Sea of Galilee, it's 600 feet below sea level. It's tropical. It's very hot and it's very humid. So what happens? Cool, dry air rushes down the mountainside, hits that wet air and turbulence, immediate turbulence, and it creates these, they, you know, you, we would call them squalls, these these sometimes very localized but fast moving, and, and then sometimes very big, depending on the weather conditions, just huge storms. And the key is you never see it coming because that cool, dry air coming off the top of the mountain, there's no clouds. It's not like you see a storm in the distance coming, and you're like, yeah, we, uh, we need to get back in. There's nothing, and suddenly it's everything. It swoops on them, and very, very, so this strong wind hits them. Very little warning. Everything looks fine, and then boom. Now, right away, it just you just we see an application here for us. Just a quick, storms will come in your life. Storms are going to come in your life. We're going to see all about this storm, but we have to understand. Storms are going to come. Now, for, for, for most of you, here, for most of you at home, it's like, uh, Duh, right? If you haven't had any major storms, it's generally because you're young or you've lived a charmed life. But there will be. It's just the way it works, all right? And see, for a lot of people, people are planners, which the thing is, if you're a planner, you've got to be very careful because being a planner turns easily into becoming a control freak. It just goes right together, right? And so what do you do? People plan. Why do people plan? What do people plan? To avoid the storms. We plan to avoid the storms. We get insurance. We do this. We do this. We do this. Whatever it is, to avoid storms or navigate around them. And that's the thing. Uh, for us, we, we try to do that. I've got to find my place here. I think I just lost. It. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because there will be storms. And sometimes we're the cause of them. This is the, isn't that just the worst thing? Sometimes you go to the Lord. and You say, God, I'm coming here because I have messed up. <clears throat> I've done something. Excuse me. And it, I know it's my fault. I have no standing here. I know it's my fault. This is not. This is not being persecuted by some coworker because I love Jesus. This is something I've screwed up and done. So we get stormed sometimes, sometimes just because we bring them on ourselves. We get storms sometimes just because we live in a sinful fallen world. And that sin causes storm. It's not like your fault. It's not like it, it, it was caused by any specific... It just is the way... The way this world is. Now, some of you may have been told, accept Jesus, give your life to Jesus, and everything will be great. And what happened is they forgot to tell you the last phrase once you die. Because in between, there are storms in our lives. And here, I mean, you think about it the disciples did nothing wrong, and they are in the middle of a storm. There are all kinds of storms. I mean, you know as well as that. There's financial storms. I lost my money. or I don't have enough money. There's relational storms. I thought we were happily ever after, and now we're talking about divorce. Physical storms. I've lost my health. Vocational storms. I've lost my job. Parental storms. My child is wandering. All these storms that are going on in our lives, not necessarily our fault. They're just happening, because is this the world we live in? Storms on the outside and storms on the inside. So we see the setting. We see the storm. And now I want you to see the Lord of the storm. When they rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. So Jesus, see, Jesus is coming to them, and they're frightened. the 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 word "frightened" it has the idea of you're fearing something because it's unknown. It's out of your. It's out of uh, of what you have known previously. It's not natural. Something totally unexpected, and so they're frightened. And also, remember, we've mentioned this before. In those days, people, but Jews especially, but all people. They believed the areas of deep water were in the realm of evil. The Jews believed this is Satan's realm. Deep water is Satan's realm. And so what would they do at the Sea of Galilee? And oftentimes everywhere, the Mediterranean Sea, everywhere they sailed, they would sail along the coast, keep the coast in in view so you can get there quickly if something horrible happens. That was a smart thing to do in the Sea of Galilee because these storms came up so quickly. And so they believed this is, this is the realm of the devil. This is an evil place in this water. So anything that happens out here scares us. So you can see with how they've been culturally brought up, they see someone walking towards them on the water, which is what we call a miracle, right? It's what we call a miracle. We don't call it Wednesday because it doesn't happen every week. This is a miracle, right? And they see somebody walking on the water. Well, their first thought is, oh, this could be good. No. Their first thought is, wrong place, wrong time, dude. It's the devil. It's a ghost. It's something evil. That's their assumption, is that something evil. And so, um, especially if you add on the fact that there's a storm going on, which they assume came because of something evil. I always think about how they talk to each other, And sometimes, I just make stuff up, but uh, I I like to think that it's kind of something, I can imagine somebody, maybe it was Peter, right? Maybe it's Peter who said, I knew it. I know, I told you guys, don't go out here after nightfall. And John maybe said, but Jesus told us to. And Peter would say, obviously, Jesus did not realize that there would be a storm and a ghost. Remember, he's a carpenter, not a sailor. Because Peter was a sailor. John, was they were fishermen, right? And so, and so what's happening? They, they, it just fits their natural idea of what, what's happening. Storm, nighttime, deep water, this is bad. Storm comes, that's bad. All this is evil. Now, here comes something. It's a ghost. Got to be a ghost. So that's what they're thinking. But for us, you know, you think about this. If you were in a scary situation and you saw something that was not normal, but maybe supernatural, How would you feel? You'd be frightened just like them. Because it's not normal for someone to come walking on the water. Now, this is where Jesus comes and Peter comes out to him in in, in the book of Matthew. He goes into great detail on that, asking, uh, Peter says, if it's you, then tell me to step out. And Jesus says, okay, step out. Peter steps out, right? And he's looking at Jesus, and hes I can imagine, can you imagine? He steps out, and he's like, I'm doing it. Look, see, I'm, I'm sinking. Because once he took his eyes off Jesus, he started sinking in the water, and Jesus pulls him out, and Jesus tells him, oh, ye of little faith. But what's cool to me is that is he's not saying, oh, ye of no faith. Oh, ye of little faith. Because what does that mean? That means you can make your faith stronger, Peter. You got it for a second. It could be better. So they come out. He comes out. He comes out. And Peter sees him, gets distracted by the storm, starts to begin to sink. But I love this. I love, look at verse 20, how Jesus uh, reassures them. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, this is a powerful verse. The the translators can struggle with this because the Greek construction is a little different. And it's because Jesus is saying something very powerful that his disciples would get in a heartbeat, all right? Because literally, you know, He's telling them, literally it says, I am, don't fear. Now, you can see, if you're a translator, you're going, that doesn't make sense. Well, it does make sense to a Hebrew, because I am is the name of God. When Moses met the burning bush, and Moses said, what is your name? So I can tell people who, who, who you are. And God says, my name is, I am. I am that I am. That's how they try to make it more readable in the Hebrew. But it's literally just, I am. In the Greek, he's just saying, ego ami, ego ami, I am. That means with God, there was, there's no I was, there's no I will be. I just am. I exist. I'm above it all. There's no beginning. There's no ending. I just am. He is the unique, self-sufficient, holy God. Jesus is revealing to them, Jehovah or Yahweh, I am him. That's me. I am God. This is incredible, but this is incredibly reassuring because he's telling them, you're in the presence of God Almighty in the midst of this storm, so don't be afraid about the storm. Don't be afraid about the storm." We are made to be in relationship with God. That's what we're made for. But we decided to go our own way. And in many ways, what we did is we decided to become our own God. You can see this so many ways, you know, and I don't want to bash, but it's a lot of self-help books or podcasts or videos, they can have good stuff to say and they can be helpful. And that is true. But also, they can subtly bring this idea you can be whatever you want to be. You can do it. You are all you need. All you need is the power that is is within you. And what happens, that can create a false belief that I am self-sufficient. If I am self-sufficient, then I'm God. But when we come in contact with the creator of the universe, this ultimate power, oftentimes there is a fright. We see our weaknesses exposed. We see our dependence exposed. We just see ourselves exposed. You know, last week I was talking about some of this, and one of the things I said was this can be exciting and scary at the same time. That's what it is. It's kind of like when you're around someone, you know is significantly more gifted than you are, or you're around someone who is much more good-looking than you are, or you're around someone who's much richer than you are, or much smarter than you are, or on and on and on. You see what I'm saying? And you kind of want to be around them, but also you feel a little bit of jealousy or a little bit of dislike at the same time. Why? Because they show you up. You're exposed. No one else may see it, but you see it. He knows way more about this than I do. She is just, she is so much better. She's more well spoken than I am. He's smarter, right? She's more beautiful. Du, 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 all those things. And what happens? You feel it. You can like that person and be a little jealous at the same time. And it's the same thing with God. I want him. I hear this sometimes from people I want God. But what if I don't get what I want? What if he doesn't give me what I want? What if he asks me to do something I don't want to do? I mean, I want this relationship with God, but what if he asks me to do something that I don't want to do? And see, the problem there is you want him, but you want to keep control. And you just can't have it both ways. There's only room for one God. You can't have both. He's the only one who can take you, who can grow you, who can encourage you, who can discipline you to get to where you to be, the person you should be, to get to where you should be, to get to shore. He's the only one that can do it because he's the only one who really loves you because real love wants you to change. Real love wants to see you change. Real love wants to help you change. Real love wants to help you grow, wants to see you grow. The love that says, oh, I don't want to bother you. I just want you to be happy just as you are. I never want you to be upset with me. That's not love. That's codependency. So Jesus says, Jesus says, do not be afraid. I am is here. He says that to them. He says it to us. He says, look at me. Don't be distracted by that. 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 Look at me. Focus on me. I am the Lord of the storm. I have power over nature. I have power over destruction. I have power over death. The storms on the outside, the storms on the inside." I am the Lord of the storm. And if you're willing, <clears throat> if you're willing to take me in, which begins with a decision to follow him, to see yourself, to see your inadequacies, the sin that's in your life, and then to see his provision for your sin and to commit yourself to it. He says, see me, look at me, follow me. Why? Because I'm the Lord over disorder. I'm the Lord over turbulence. I'm the Lord over the chaos in your life. And so I see here this interesting idea that Jesus comes to us. And he says, look at me, because this is who I am. I am. And so I said first in application, I said storms will come. Let me give you a second one here. Storms will blow you off course. They will fight against you and against your faith. How many of us will say at times, you know, sometimes you're in your life and at a certain point you go, how did I get here? How did I get to this point? How did all that stuff happen to get to where I am now? Why did I do that? I didn't want this for my life. No little kid grows up, you know, and says, yeah, I want to get married. I want to have kids. And then I just, I just want to become so wrapped up in my job that my kid's do things desperately to get my love. And ultimately, you know, they, they, they sense that there's something that I love more than them, and it crushes their spirit. I want that, right? What little girl grows up, growing up, says, I want to get older, and then I want to just give myself to men and let them use and abuse me and treat me just like a piece of nothing. I want that for my life. Who says that? No one says that. No one says that. And yet so many times in our lives, we go, how did I get here? I didn't want this for my life. Jesus, it's interesting, Jesus never minimizes the storm like people often do in our lives, right? Jesus doesn't say, hey, guys, I saw the weather report. This thing will be over in about 15 minutes. And they're thinking, in 15 minutes, we may be dead. He never minimizes the storm. He doesn't say, Oh, this too shall pass. Time heals all wounds. Every cloud has a silver lining. That kind of talk is cold comfort when you're in the middle of a storm. So Jesus doesn't minimize the storm, he maximizes himself. He says, I know there's a storm. Now look at me. Look at me. Focus on me. He says, Take heart see who I am. I'm in the storm with you. I am your God. So, storms will blow you, of course. Storms will shake your foundation. What are you living for? Here's the deal. When you start thinking about what do you live for, if a storm can shake it or take it, it's the wrong thing. Because people have, we all do, people have idols, ways of keeping control of their lives things that we worship that bow down to we center our life on it we build on it we get meaning and joy and security and self-worth from it and then a storm comes and it shakes your idol you know in the book of job which is the classic for this satan's attack on job was this he says god he's using you god job is using you he's just manipulating you so that you will give him what he wants. What does he want? He wants a big family. He wants a lot of crops. He wants a lot of money. He wants a big house. You take that stuff from him, he'll fall. He'll crumple because he's using you. He doesn't love you. And God says, he does love me. Satan says, prove it. And then Satan is allowed to take those things. This is written and lived for us. And what happens? He does not curse God. Satan told God, he will curse you to your face. And he does not curse. His wife comes to him finally begging, saying, just curse God and die. Job's like, no. Though he slay me, yet I will serve him. Why? Because he's God. We've gone over this sometimes. And I mean, Job is an incredibly hard truth for us to deal with. It's an incredibly hard situation. And yet, God rewards him at the end, magnifies the, 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 to, the reward at the end. But, it's incredibly, but the thing that's important for us to understand, you know, we say this here. I say this here. I don't follow God because he works, because it works. I follow God because he's God. I believe in God because I believe it's true. I believe he's God. Now, it does happen to work. I have found more joy in my life than I ever expected. I found more peace in my life than I ever expected. I've done more things in my life than I ever expected. My life has been more meaningful than I ever expected. So it does work, but I didn't do it because it works. I did it because he's God. So I follow. And Job basically came to that same conclusion. In the parable, Jesus tells the parable of the two houses, house built on a rock and house built on the sand. What was the thing? Storm. A storm came. The storm puts the houses to the test. If you build your life on beauty, the storm of aging cannot be stopped. If you build your life on your career, the storm of economic downturn, or maybe the storm of superior competition, you can't fight. It just comes. If your life is built on having, finding, true love, sometimes the storm of singleness, the storm of loneliness, the storm of rejection, you can't build on that. Those are great things. Beauty is a great thing. A good career is a great thing. Finding love in a lifelong relationship that reflects God and just is an awesome awesome thing, but you can't build on that. Storms can take that away. Final thing, storms can be bigger than you, but they're not bigger than Jesus. Jesus tells them, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm the Lord of the storm. Fear only sees the storm. Faith is seeing Jesus in the midst of the storm. All through the Bible. You know, Jesus tells them, don't fear, fear not. All through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, this concept of fear not, because God knows that's one of our biggest problems, if not the biggest. We fall for fear. We make decisions out of fear. We, we live a certain way out of fear. What will people think? What will this person do? What will my parents think? What will my children think? What, will, what about this? How will I live? What will I, I how am I going to retire? How am I, all those things. So we make decisions based on fear. And he's constantly telling us, do not be afraid. And most of the time, he follows it or precedes it with the promise because I'm with you. I'm with you. Because the storms are bigger than we are. So in our storms, and right now, with everybody here, some of you are facing really difficult storms. Some of you aren't. Things are smooth. It's, it's clear sailing right now, and that's great. But the storms will come, and they will be bigger than you. And Jesus is saying, if you're in a storm now, look at me. If you're not in a storm now, he's saying, look at me, because there's a storm coming. What better way to go into it focused on me than to be haphazardly looking all over the place? Look to him. And I love, it tells us that he comes to them. He comes to them in their storm." He does not stand on the shore and say, if you guys work real hard and you row real hard and get to me, I will help you. If you clean up your life, get everything straight, then I'm willing to work with you. No, he comes to them. He comes to you in your storm. He sees your pain. He cries your tears. He comes to you and he says, I am. Don't be afraid. You know, we've been looking in John and, and in other books as we've studied, and just thinking about Jesus and these declarations, these, these descriptions. In a sense, he tells, 1 John tells us, I am, he is light. I am light. I am love. I am life. I am the Lord of the feast. We just saw that. I am the Lord of the storm. Look at me. Look at me in your storm. It's interesting. Um, in Genesis 22, Moses names God. Uh, we've talked about the name of God quite a few times uh, in the in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew, was originally there were no vowels. It was just consonants, and and then people put in the vowels based on this, how the sentence ran. They they understood the word what it would be and. And they did that. You can do that if you ever try it. Take vowels out of a sentence and then you can make it make it make sense, but it's because you just saw it. But, anyways, so there's no vowels. And so when he says, What's your name? Right? God says, basically, he says, Yod hey Vav He. That's his name. That's what we would translate Yahweh. Uh, people say Jehovah, but it's, that's more of a guess. It's, I think it's not quite right. But it's just Yahweh. And, and uh, we've talked about this. It's very interesting. Those are, those are very breathing uh, consonants. Yod, hey, vav, hey. And, and I, I ran across this guy, and he was writing about the, these old rabbis that used to say, um, they wrote it in, in uh, I think it's the Talmud. Um, they would write, um, when a little baby is born, does it take its first breath, or does it speak the name of God? Breath, yo, hey, va, hey, because it reminded them, the name of God reminded them of breath because it's very breathing. Or they would say, when a person is dying, do they breathe their last breath? Or the last thing they do on this earth, do they speak the name of God? <sighs> and so we have this name, Yahweh. And Moses oftentimes and other biblical writers then would tack something onto that name to give a fuller description an idea of Yahweh. And so Genesis 22, he calls, he calls him, it, we, we hear it, some songs are popular, Jehovah Jireh, or it would be Yahweh Yira, right? And Jehovah Jireh sounds better than Yahweh Yirah. and so people go with that. But it takes Yahweh, the heavy breathing, and it means, it means I am, just means I am, I exist, I have never not existed. And then it adds this word, and the word literally means to see, Yira literally means to see. But what it meant to people in those days was he sees my need and he provides. It became this kind of idea of what it meant. And so when we get uh, uh, Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh Yira in Genesis 22, it's saying God sees you, you, and God provides for you. And it's very specific. It's you. Think about that. God is watching you because he loves you. He's watching you. I was listening the other day to a song, um, and they were saying, Jehovah Jireh, and the guy said, he is enough. He's the seer and the provider, so he is enough. I thought that's so appropriate because Jesus is telling the disciples on the water, in the midst of a storm, I am enough for you. Focus on me because I am enough. And so for us, storms are going to come. They will fight you. They'll blow you off course. They'll fight against you. They will sometimes shake your foundation. And they will be bigger than you oftentimes. And that's when you need to focus on Jesus. All your planning, all your saving, all your working, all your whatever it is, won't handle it. And that's why we need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are Yahweh Yira, the God who sees and provides for his children. And as your children, we come to you, Lord. Every one of us is involved, doing different things, struggling maybe sometimes, doing well maybe. And God, we ask that we would focus on you in the bad times and the good times. That we would keep our eyes on Ego Ami, the great I am. And in doing that, we rise, like Peter, we rise above the storm. The storm doesn't go away. But now we are able to get through. And so, Lord, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for sending your son to die for us. And now, Father, help us to live and reflect you as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.